hello and welcome to A Greener Future, exploring regenerative design approaches. I'm Joe Shuttleworth and I'm a water engineer at Arab. I work on projects aiming to solve the climate crisis. We hear a lot about these enormous issues like climate change, floods, droughts and global warming, but rarely discuss how to solve them. In this podcast, we're hoping to look at successful environmental projects, how they're delivered and why they work, all with the help of real industry experts from around the world. Today, I'm looking at regenerative futures and asking how we approach design in the water and environmental sectors. To do that, I'm joined by strategic designer, architect and urbanist Paul Simpkins from Arab, whose work focuses on outcome-led design with a focus on integrated systems. Together, we're going to be speaking to Professor Kelly Shannon from KU Leuven in Belgium. Kelly is a co-founder of Research, Urbanism and Architecture, whose projects include the master plan for the Cantho and Mekong Delta in Vietnam, where water was central in framing a transformation of both areas. She writes regularly for various journals and has edited and authored several books revolving around landscape, infrastructure and urbanism. Paul Kelly, thanks so much for joining me today. Great to be here, thanks. Before we bring Kelly in, I'd like to first ask Paul if we can unpack the term regenerative. Where does it come from? What does it mean? And perhaps more importantly, why regenerative and why now? We've noticed it's increasingly a term that's coming, I'd say sort of coming back, we can discuss that, um, and work that's been going on in Europe over the last couple of years around regenerative futures, um, looking at how the concept might be coming embedded across all our work, addressing some of the major challenges, um, particularly around climate action and caring for ecological systems. Um, and kind of a realization that there's it's not no longer sufficient merely to sustain current systems, but in many areas we need to kind of restore and enhance them and leave them in a better place for future generations. And the terminology and framings are always going to shift, but the underlying principles path less so. And I was been really fascinated by the piece Kelly that you've done called Fifty Entry Lexicon for Twenty First Century Urbanism, which is a great piece um, where you make the link between language and concepts and suggest how important the language potentially is. I wonder, I'd really interested to hear a bit more about that and regenerative maybe in the context of that of that article in your work. Is it a term you see as useful and likely to come central to our practice in the way that sort of sustainability has? I've personally been following the work of Arab for, for many decades and remain always impressed how you're at the cutting edge of technology issues and also conceptual framings. And Paul, I think you're right. Um, to, to recognize that over time, I and with many of my colleagues, we've become very interested in the origin of concepts and phrases that we use, and even as you suggest, could use, knowing that it's going to continue to change in reimagining our built environment. I think it's interesting that Joe asked why now and why new words. Um, I think we all understand that we're now at a moment in time when we understand we're at a critical tipping point, a precipice, standing even, some would argue, before the wholesale destruction of the planet. And it's clear that we need new words, a new vocabulary, new concepts, in order to build new stories, in order to build new futures. So we need, I think, always to create stories in order to understand our place in the world. And that's, of course, where design and engineering are are very, very important. And where I would argue, I think as well, that we can appropriate and adapt concepts and words from other disciplines. So in this lexicon that we referred to, that I co-authored with my colleague 
at the University Bruno de Mulder. We, we expanded on words as a start. It's, it's a work in progress that could respond to the contemporary condition. And I think what's interesting to note is also that we didn't use the word sustainability. We find it a word that's overused um, and somehow it's come to mean everything and therefore nothing. So instead, we started introducing words like cyclic systems, recommoning, deep ecology, ecological infrastructure, hydraulic civilization, land ethic, stewardship, rewilding, succession. And, and these words, there are many others, of course, but there were words where we could find um, a precise etymology and a history of conceptualization by, by various experts and, and scholars. And we saw all the terms also somehow interestingly in your notion of regenerative urbanism that point to something holistic, systemic, and, and completely interdependent. So in that sense, I agree with you that adding to the lexicon um, and adding to the isms of urbanism, regenerative is, is fantastic, and it should surely be included in our next iteration of this lexicon. Regeneration actually comes from biology. So again, borrowing from fields outside our own. It's defined, again, through biology as a process of renewal, of restoration, of tissue growth that makes genomes, cells, organisms, and ecosystems resilient to natural fluctuations. So we know, I think that as humankind, we, we have to make radical efforts, as you have already said, to repair and to heal and to basically react to the frantic pace of industrialization, modernization, particularly as pushed by neoliberal practices of growth. Kelly, I totally agree with that, specifically around what you were saying at the beginning around the importance of words and their meanings, especially around the environment where words seem to be thrown around very liberally at the moment. How do you think these words and their definitions are changing from your experience? It's accelerated in the last decades, but started already, you could say, even in the, in the UK with the, with the great industrial era. Um, so I, I think this notion of re, um, regeneration, uh, it fits very well into a, a, say, trend at the moment where the re prefix is really prevalent. Even the three R's of, cir of circularity, recycling, renewing, reuse. And rethinking. We're, we're always inventing new ways of thinking, rethinking, but that often these concepts that we think we've dubbed as new, they're, they're really connected back to, to histories, to the kind of long history of cultures, of landscapes, of, of even language. And regenerative design and notions of circularity have, have existed for, for millennia. When in different indigenous, pre-modern, non-Western worldviews, and they've been strongly mirrored in the way we, we inhabit the earth. And for me, one, one person, um, personality, that comes to the fore today is um, the polymath Alexander von Humboldt, who was really, I think, instrumental in understanding um, the interconnectivity, the web of life, the web of connectivity and getting away from the kind of compartmentalization that was occurring. So I, I think the ideas of, of such a, a thinker um, can be still a great inspiration for us going into the 21st century. 
I mean, those notions of breaking down silos and compartmentalization are really are really powerful. And you could argue that sort of around sort of late 20th century, it kind of reached a you know its peak really of, of siloed practice and urbanism, couldn't you? But I I like I love that idea of wavelengths of history um, and thinking them along now because. You know, so many of those ideas, again, I always think back to sort of 60s and 70s and seminal works like Design with Nature, Ian McHarg, and so much ecological thinking that came out then, which could literally just be printed and could be written now. Um, and, and it wasn't called regenerative design, but the spirit of it was was that holism. Um, interestingly, your your point there about it coming from biology, it's fascinating because when, when I first come across regenerative it, it, in my early career as sort of it was around urbanism, the urban renaissance in the UK, you know, the urban regeneration has been around for 20 years in the urban planning world. Um, and that's the only place that that word really came in, revitalization, renaissance, but um, really in a sort of a very different way, different emphasis in a way to what's emerging now, which seems to almost go back more to that holistic biological angle. Maybe sustainability carried that role at the time, um, but regenerative emerging something more expansive and fundamental. Whilst a lot of the emphasis now is definitely on bio, biological and ecological systems, can this notion still carry those other aspects of sort of social, cultural, placemaking and sort of urban well-being, which are still also really important on the gender? Well, I think that's a great uh, point, Paul. And of course, I, I agree with you that regenerative design is kind of uh, progressing and taking a, a leap forward from mere, you could say, revitalization. So it's much more about, I think, uh, kicking in new vitalities to, to our degraded cities, et cetera, but really understanding that we have to reboot ecology. And ecology in that sense, I think it's not only the, um, the biological and the environmental ecology, but ecologies, social ecologies, cultural ecologies, political ecologies, and even financial ecologies, economic ecologies. So in this sense, the, the notion of understanding the interconnectivity. And I would argue here as well, we, we have to, we know we're in the age of the Anthropocene where humankind is almost outstripping geology, but the need to reconnect back to non-human um, is, is as well incredibly important. And I think deeply embedded in the notion of the regenerative. That's really interesting. Your point about ecology, not necessarily just like, uh, we see that those terms coming up a lot, like you talk about ecosystems of, you know, the digital ecosystem or, you know, ecologies of uh, practice. That, or, and so I like that idea that it's ecology, but in that really broadest sense of that connectivity and um, whole systems. Again, that's a language thing, isn't it, about using the same words in different contexts? I think this notion of ecology, it's mm. even it's infiltrated the business world. It's infiltrated many, many different uh, worlds. But the the interconnectivity of all of them into this web is what I think remains super, super fascinating. And especially for us as engineers and designers to understand that we, we play a critical role in this and in understanding how to make these ties together, getting away, as you've said, from the silos. Um, and in this sense, we can, we can really leverage this holistic perspective, which we know now, you could even say more than ever. Of course, every generation thinks their moment is the critical moment in time. But we know that the IPCC just came out with a, so the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change just issued a red code for humanity. So for them, it's very clear that what we've been doing 
warming the planet is inevitable, it's irreversible, it's intensifying, and it's indisputably linked to our actions. So the only way to change course is for us to also continue to, to have actions that... Uh, and I, I think in a certain degree, this crisis, the red code for humanity that's been issued, but also even what we're living through now with the COVID pandemic, the crisis forces a response. So hopefully this kind of notion that something good, you know, don't let a crisis go to waste, I think is something we also have to take on board as, as people working in design and engineering. Yeah, absolutely. And the the complexity of those overlapping challenges that COVID, the climate um, and biodiversity crisis means more than ever, we kind of need some sort of shared narrative or framework to help us all navigate them and make sure we don't go back down um, the, the idea of silos, really. It's, sustainability, although it was way, way, way slow <laughs> in achieving it, did seem to be kind of really getting somewhere in terms of that idea of triple bottom line and um, uh and a holistic approach, um, or, and 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 I guess it's really important that we kind of really carry that forward. And maybe that's one of the roles that that regenerative design as a narrative can kind of really play. The act of the sort of you know the missions or these crises, it's sort of you know clear that you know bringing in a regenerative approach, it's sort of impossible to separate you know the built and natural environment into these different silos. But you know I'm really keen on trying to understand you know how water and the role of water. You know, what, what what can that play in shaping a regenerative future? Yeah, kind of about nine years ago, we kind of developed something called the Design with Water approach, which was a blatant reference to Muck Hogg's Design with Nature. But it was kind of going, right, you know, how can we do an outcomes-led framework which addresses the integrated water cycle, but also tries to achieve some of these wider outcomes, a bit like as you've described. And it's been really interesting in the way it's shaped our work. Kelly, I know also noticed that in your work, most of it has been in some way involved with water and um, and and how water can drive uh, things. And your Water Urbanisms books, you've kind of observed that water is reconquering the contemporary agenda of urbanism, which I thought was really fascinating, and talked about how we might take advantage of the structuring capacity of, that water offers urbanism. But I wonder if maybe you could comment a bit further on what you meant by that and what are the implications for planning and design if water does sort of take over well, thanks for that, Paul. I, I completely agree with you that using the lens of water to, to look and unfold many other things in the built environment is, is fantastic. And what you're doing with your design with water, I think, is, is, is a great step forward. Again, for me, going back a little bit to history, I, I think it's really important to, to understand, and that's something we tried to address in the books you referred to, is that we've we've always once upon a time we really lived in a much more symbiotic relationship with with nature, and particularly with water and water ecologies, the rhythms of rivers, understanding almost intuitively tides and what they meant, um, and there were a whole series of cultural practices and very context responsive um, ways to manage water that came out of this, in addition to a whole series of, say, myths and traditions and daily practices. So for me, what is interesting to understand, of course, we cannot be nostalgic and we can't, we're not living in millennia ago and nothing can be transposed literally. But I think one, one thing, and we, we have sh- will surely come back to this in the discussions about, no doubt, technology, 
But understanding as we've progressed with technology, with engineering, we've tended to banish water. Um, it's, we've, we've gotten enough knowledge to create wonderful sewer systems, water supply systems. And it a little, a little bit highlights the, the whole notion of out of sight, out of mind. So water is now, um, taken for granted and, and not anymore part of something we live with and see. And in a way, that's kind of part of our success story, right? In terms of we were so good at solving some of those fundamental problems that they just are assumed to be dealt with, although arguably the way we solved them might be challenged now. The, the, it was our success, as you say, and great feats of engineering and, 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 and intelligence and substantial financial uh, support to get that done. But at the same time, I think we're now starting to see is that it is also working against us because nature's force is stronger than humankind's. And we're now suffering some of the consequences of a kind of quite cavalier, you could say almost attitude that we had to conquering, domesticating, taming nature and making it do what we wanted. So I, I think we're now starting to see more floods. The whole notion that the Anthropocene age is, is due to our intervention, our changing somehow of nature. And I think what now becomes interesting, of course, is where there's the kind of flip side where we start debuilding some of these great feats of progress. There's projects of dam removal. There's projects of river restoration. There's whole notions of how do we, in the most uh, civilized and, and um, places, how do we how do we harvest rainwater in a way that they maybe used to millennia ago? So I, I think in that sense, it's it's really fantastic to understand that we're in this moment of understanding how, and that's where we've developed this term water urbanism. So how can we work? with new ways to tap, distribute, and to basically manage settlements and water and use, use, use our technology, use our knowledge to understand where to urbanize, where to not urbanize, and how a kind of regenerative approach towards ecologies and water systems can guide how we, in, in developing nations, still urbanize and in our older civilizations and older cities like in Europe, how, how we use it as a way to, to regenerate and in, in a certain sense, old-fashionedly revitalize urban centers. The point you made there about not building or de-building is quite powerful, especially when we talk about, we'll come back to, you know, technology about this relentless progress and forward, forward moving and the language of things like continuous growth, which are all part of our collective paradigm. The idea that actually the, the right technological response might be de-building or doing a socio-cultural intervention is, is, is really fascinating um, and, and certainly one we're beginning to see input increasingly important to recognize that some interventions may be temporary they may be non-physical um, yeah that's definitely a really interesting theme there and also the point about being aware of context there's a massive potential to leapfrog states towards more ecological responses in developing countries but there's also this big um uh tension and pressure to continue with pre previous trajectories of development which is kind of locked lock, locked in so um you know there's that massive opportunity in new places but also kind of a, a real challenge there in your work you've mentioned hydraulic civilizations and 
I'm wondering what, what are the triggers and factors that have caused water to be so central to those? Is this something that we should aspire to again or we can? It seems like sometimes they've been social, cultural. You've sort of talked about, you know, belief systems, but maybe more than ever now, it seems that they seem to be more linked to necessity, kind of shocks or stresses, kind of collective responses to crises that are at least bringing that back on the agenda. Yeah, well, I think the, what you just ended with, this crisis of every sort forces a reevaluation, a reevaluation of values and a reevaluation of how we've been doing things. For me, with regards to water, um, living in Belgium, of course, we've just, the south of the country, um, as well as parts of Germany, suffered enormous floods they're still recovering from. And we've seen in the last days on the news, the Hurricane Ida in in the United States has has really forced people again to rethink, to reevaluate where to live, where to not live, how to build, how to build back better, as it's often said. That the test in in New Orleans we know was um, did the levy system that they pumped in four and a half billion dollars since Hurricane Katrina would it withstand? It did, but for me it's also interesting to say yeah. We can do it. We can use massive amounts of money, massive amounts of concrete um, and survive such uh, catastrophes. But is that, again, what we want to do? Is it really regenerative? Is that the narrative? Is that the story you want to tell? Yeah, Kelly, I totally agree, you know, specifically around those stories we tell tell ourselves. But you have done some really interesting work in Asia where the role of water seems to be different sort of historically and culturally. I'm just wondering how you've seen that play out through your work and if, if, if that it really is your experience. For us, we've been working in Vietnam a lot um, over the past decades and really trying to understand this innate um, intelligence of a country that's based on water. Two big deltas, a very long coast, and how water is its DNA. So trying to understand, again, as you said, there's a kind of trajectory of progress. Progress is is technology, it's road-based, it's the kind of linear direction to the answer. Um, but, but we start questioning if there could be alternatives to that, that, as you say, leapfrog from a, say, uh, pre-industrial history to a kind of regenerative and ecological one and skipping the kind of pitfalls of uh, intensive um, engineering. That, so we're, we've been looking, interestingly, I think in some projects of not only understanding how to respond to floods, uh, sea level rise, but also how to take water as a new way to move, as water transport. It, it was historically part of the paradigm. It's now being... Uh, shifted and kind of banished in the drive of the car equals progress. But couldn't we develop also through technology a system of um, almost demand-driven like Uber, uh, or we called it a wetro, so instead of a metro, a water-based urbanism, metro system, transport system, where you could uh, work on demand with with apps, to, to kind of deliver a, a fleet of boats uh, that, that could get away towards producing 
more emissions um, and really bring back a culture of water, living on the water, moving on the water, trading on the water that has been part of a history. That's amazing. I mean, actually, that's an amazing example of taking a lens on a particular system and then looking at wider outcomes and, and, and being open to other, other systems as well. So thinking of the opportunity to, for connectivity and movement and transport when you're doing water. And that's as much a responsibility as, as water professionals or people in that sector, isn't it? To think of those opportunities as, as it is for others to think of, of water. But it's also, I, I completely, I mean, certainly in, in, in my career even at the beginning um, water just wasn't at the table in terms of urban planning and design in that conversation of uh, that I referred to as urban regeneration it was maybe there as a waterfront but you know in terms of shaping urban form in terms of thinking about density or where you build it just was something that was shaped to the plan rather than shaping the plan um, and I think that is starting to starting to shift slowly um, probably, as you said, mainly in, at the moment in places where water is a critical driver, driven by risks and needs. Um, but that is changing a little bit too. Like I've seen in Hull, which is kind of like um, in many ways parallel to, to New Orleans, um, where flooding is so critical that the work we've done there with Living Water Partnership, you know, it started off as a, as, as a resilience and risk response, but they're turning that into a kind of how can we start to create that as a shared narrative reconnecting with that culture of a place that is fundamentally on a reclaimed delta you know um so yeah turning that that to opportunity is is there's some great great examples um great examples there i mean coming you know that thing around water trans just transcends administrative boundaries doesn't it energy can even become quite abstract but there's a certain point at which water will always be linked to a certain extent to topography and place and on that point, I agree. I, I agree completely with everything you've said uh, on that, Paul. And I, I think we really the fact that water is more center on the table in discussions is is great. But I think what's also interesting to understand is, of course, that there's a undeniable and inextricable link of water to land, to topography, as we know, of course, soil, but also vegetation. And in this uh, sense with my colleagues, we've, we've almost been developing the notion of water urbanism together with forest urbanism. So as almost seeing them as a codependent story and flip sides of the same coin, because of course, and that's, I think, blends into the whole, um, say, paradigm of blue and green infrastructure, ecological mm. infrastructure that is water, but water is, is a net to bring in so much more than, than simply water itself. Yeah, I love the idea of a net and a metaphor. It kind of emphasizes that we've we've drilled in there a bit and, and we're just gonna move on, I think, to talk about tech and things, but like we've drilled in a bit about, you know, the benefits of taking a particular lens and the power, maybe water, maybe more than any other infrastructure system is is something that that, that can facilitate that, but also we have to always make sure that we come back to thinking about holistic holistic approaches don't 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 we and and this this notion of regenerative goes across all, all, all the systems that's so interesting understanding it sort of holistically regeneratively that you know the complexity you know going back to bringing back sort of you know you know the terms around ecology into other systems sort of you know financial sort of human you know, and obviously nat natural I mean, at the moment, across the sort of, you know, from my experience across the water and environmental sectors, 
we're seeing what is really an explosion of interest in in technology, data, AI, all, all, all these things that could be termed buzzwords or could be termed sort of, you know, you know, key tools or sort of innovations. It's really interesting. And I'd like to sort of understand what, what, what you both think about, you know, the role that technology and in particular, the sort of current digital transformation can play in moving forwards towards a more regenerative future. We are going through a paradigm shift as that, you know, fourth industrial revolution, as they say, kind of information age and digital transformation for sure. And and, then that is the explosion that we're seeing of interest in that area, aren't aren't we, Joey? Certainly in in Arabwit has got massive um, developments and push in that area. But um, and we're seeing so many opportunities to accelerate and improve design through that. We, for example, have been using data um, and machine learning and things in in land planning on major projects like Shanghai. Fantastic opportunity, although you could argue that that is kind of fairly similar to what Ian McHarg did with his um, spatial planning pre-GIS 50 years ago. You know, so, um, but yeah, the the, the scale of it, um, I think there's some real um, challenges too about um, how we balance tech-driven approaches with social and cultural aspects and, and how we balance the science and the arts, um, which isn't, I don't mean art projects, I mean, you know, the arts, the sort of the non-linear, the, the different way of thinking about design. Um, if we get it right, I think digital transformation could be amazing and really open opportunities for engagement, participation, dealing with complexity and dealing with some of these intangibles that we just haven't been able to bring into technical design uh, easily um, and at scale. Um, Kelly, I, I just think that it, it ties back to some of the stuff about shared narratives, but something that really struck me that you you wrote in your Water Urbanism East, actually, editorial about the, the invention of the electric pump being to water management as the lift was to building and the car to transport. And we've just been talking about transport. And you described how each of these technical innovations led to a really fundamental par- paradigm shift in the way we shape places with as we've said, a lot of good coming, but also some detrimental effects we learned about later that we're trying to reverse, like the car-dominated city and water shifting away from in grey solutions. And I wonder, maybe you could comment a bit on that, the technological shift you've seen throughout your your career in academia and practice around the world as well, um, where practices changed towards high or new tech or even low tech and some of the positive and negative I was educated um, as an architect in in the United States, where where engineering and technological development was really at the fore. Um, we were taught very traditional, you could say, engineering, which was about, as we know, linear processes and single purpose. It was it was problem solving. But when I came to Europe and first actually to the UK, I started getting exposed, which I think was really interesting in the eighties. Um, I would say first in Europe before the United States, the blurring of expertise, the blurring of fields uh, between architecture and urbanism, urbanism and landscape, infrastructure and urbanism, now ecology. So to me, this really only seemed uh, logical. And then around that time, there started to be, you could say, a paradigm shift, I think, going from traditional engineering towards environmental engineering. So where performance was measured, and also maybe recreational uses started coming into play. But still, it was, you could say, a certain degree fragmented. And I think it's only in the recent decades that we see really much more progressive approaches, of which Arup, I think, is, is, is key. Um, 
which we could say is ecological engineering. So I, to me, ecological engineering and regenerative design are, are kind of cousins and they're, they're quite close and I think remain uh, essential. From your work, you know, across the world as an academic with, you know, people from different backgrounds, you know, different students, how do you see different perceptions of technology for, from those different people? For me, also, what's, what's very interesting, as you've mentioned, I have worked around the world as an academic. I have quite a lot of PhD students from, from various parts of the world. And there starts to be a lot of um, critique, and I think appropriately praised critique, on a tendency to um, have a blind faith in technology. Uh, technology and our, our ingenious minds and money and inventions are going to solve all the problems of the world. We know that's not true. As, you, as you've said, there's there's incredible amount of detrimental effects. So for me, it, it gives us a real opportunity. And what I think is interesting that's occurring is on the one hand, we are going to machine learning AI, but there's also a resurgence in, in something called tech, which is traditional ecological knowledge. So how can we learn from age old, super low tech ways to, to manage water, to integrate it, together with the high tech. So how can we take tech and GIS and put them together side by side and come up to a third a third way? I find that absolutely fascinating and that's that tech TEK traditional ecological knowledge because I'm also fascinated by the tech abbreviation that's emerged is as if tech is somehow different from technology that maybe technology is a bit kind of cold war space age levers and pulleys and tech is something more benign you know that's that's one for another podcast but but that's i mean that is really fascinating again you know if nobody was seeing this written down and heard the word heard tech they probably wouldn't be thinking traditionally logical knowledge right now um so that i mean that is a really great one to explore um uh, you know your point about blurring for them. I, mean, I, I studied as a water engineer and then and then did architecture, and so I've, I am really interested in that. And, and actually, Arab originally grew out of that um, bringing together of creative design and technical design in the context of architectural practice. And I think what we're doing now is really trying to explore what does that really mean when you come out of that natural collaboration around an, an object into you know thinking about ecosystems bioregions the future of the planet etc that's a journey we're on and 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 and, and kind of a really in, in, important one i think um yeah so i guess sort of getting getting towards the the the, the end but it's this has been fascinating i'm kind of thinking you know around your point around you know how we all how how i say collectively as disciplines you know we embrace these developments which led to paradigm shifts some of which we're trying to reverse how do we navigate that now um, to kind of understand which aspects of technology are really going to be useful and which actually might be distracting our attention that might be pushing us down areas that aren't aren't helpful that we might might look back on and how can the current you know maybe the digital transformation aspect really sort of support this the paradigm shift we really need towards regenerative futures. Well, I think the way you started it, Paul, is talking about the, um, how Arab started looking at architecture and almost, you could say, objects, and then expanding to their across scales, understanding it's all about nested scales going to the environment. To me, it's all about scales, surely, from architecture to territory and everything in between. But also, I, I think about time. 
Uh, it's it's about the the intertwining of time, and I, I think in that sense, if we understand that our moment here on Earth is a is a very small period in in, in the long durée of time, and we start understanding that. In this sense, also technology that we have today of things like GIS, of, of machine learning, of AI. If we complement that, as you said, with tech, T-E-K, and, and even uh, looking at the way historic cartographers in the 16th century started to draw maps, started to draw water. What, what's so now fascinating about GIS systems is that they can they can layer these historic maps with the most contemporary data-linked information. And we can really understand how history and geography um, become really an important component of, of the way we use technology. But for me, I, I also would have to say, I, uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm all in favor and trying to educate myself as much as I can on new technologies. But it seems that we really are have to be careful and have to consider how we how far we go with technology um, and this goes back to the to, to something we, we spoke a bit about in the beginning is if we understand that as designers as engineers or simply as humans are, are, are we're always trying to create new narratives create trying to understand our place in the world how can we use technology to further define what we want to become? What stories do we want to tell and try to convince others? And how then do we use technology in particular to understand we have to create a more socio and ecological just world because everything we've done to this moment has simply increased, you could say a certain amount of injustice. So we've made enormous strides, but we know everything about technology is also linked to values, to different norms and, and systems, and that we have to find for the future generation, what technology do we take on board? How, how far do we go? And for me, that's really interesting also to, to link it to the moment we are in now, the moment of crisis, the, the environmental crisis, the pandemic, to understand that it's it's not a doomsday, but it's a portal. It's a portal to regenerate, to rethink, to, to come to something as a way forward. And it's that thing about what we do with, with the tech, isn't it? Like, we've got more power than Ian McHarg had to do mapping and those 16th century cartographers. But sometimes we can just scale it up rather than think about how we do it differently. No doubt, you know, maybe regenerative might be a new term in a couple of years, but for now, maybe it's something that's useful to help carry that kind of idea of sustainability, renew it and take it beyond just keeping the status quo to making something better. That's just been such a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate that. Maybe we'll get a chance to explore some of these themes in, in future. Well, I hope so. And I, I thank you again, you and you and um, Joe both for, for initiating this. And to me, it's really fantastic. And I, uh, yeah, I, I look forward to finding ways to collaborate and seeing the continuing work that you're doing. Uh, always uh, great work at, at Arab. Brilliant. Thank you so much. So that brings us to the end of the podcast. Thanks to Professor Kelly Shannon and Paul Simpkins for joining me. I'm hoping that you, our audience, will get in touch to tell us what you think. You can find us on arab.com or on our social media channels, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. 
and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts or your usual podcast streaming platform. I've been Joe Shuttleworth. Thanks for listening.